Okay, guys, go ahead. We're, we're going to Exodus 8, but I want you to put a tassel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So it's going to take us a second to get there, but when I say go, I want you ready to go. Hey, one more time for our praise team. <clears throat> you know, that takes a lot of work, guys. Practice, time, dedication, disciplines. They're not just getting on stage and singing a bunch of songs they don't know and they haven't spent hours preparing for. We're blessed as a church to have a phenomenal team. Um, just funny opening story here. I, I spent a lot of time with Stoney DeVille. He's one of my great friends. I love him. And so he picks me up and in his car, his truck, this week, and we go out for lunch, and he has the radio down. And I go, well, what's he listening to right there? I think I know this. And I said, is that Eastview? He goes, yeah. He goes, there's nothing better on the radio than our praise team. And so my man's just jamming out. He spends hours doing all of this, and then on his free time, there's nothing better. And that's a great picture of the church. So we are blessed with a phenomenal, phenomenal gifted worship team. Exodus 8, Plague 4. If you're a note taker, here's a question that I want on your mind. Do you see protection in punishment? The, the songs that we worshiped in this morning in David's prayer about not understanding how you'd be so graceful to such a wicked people. And what Brent read to us in the gospel of loving those who are unlovable, when we see worldly tragedy, do we see protection in punishment? How in our wildest imaginations could we receive in the midst of studying tragedy, punishment, and a plague, how could we see phenomenal grace and encouragement this morning? Do you see protection and punishment? So as we continued our study in the plagues, what God shows us in all 10 and has done beautifully so far by his word is that God has this robust, phenomenal powerful sermon in each plague. So God is not just using frogs. He's not just using lice. He's not just using water. There is this wildly powerful sermon in all of it. It just takes a little time and a little work with a shovel to dig in there to see it. And so what we see in God's word is that God uses the lions and he uses the lice. He uses famine, and what we're going to see this week, he uses flies. Every bit of meat is used off the bone by the Lord in his message. God uses every inch, every person. God uses hell. God uses heaven. God uses sin. He uses faith. He uses the old. He uses the new. He uses every square inch. To preach his sermon. So what is God's sermon in plague for? How is a plague a wonderful encouragement to you and I today? 
Look at verses 20 and 21. Chapter 8 of Exodus, verses 20 and 21. This is plague 4. God has used the Nile. He has used the frogs. He has used the lice. And now we are at the fly. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Do you see how God's word is consistent? That's a sermon in itself. God doesn't change his word. God does not say, well, hey, Pharaoh's not hearing me. Let me spin it in a different way. Maybe he'll understand a different way. No, no, no. God does not compromise. God's word is consistent. Let my people go that they may serve me, or else I will not let my people go. And behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants on your people and into your homes, the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And so one thing that we have seen in the plagues is that with each and every plague, there is a corresponding false god, an idol that God is crushing, right? And so we've seen with all of it so far, this to ring true. And so we saw this with the Nile, we see this with the frogs, we see this with the lice, and we see this with the flies. Now the only thing that is somewhat different about the flies versus the frogs and others is that there's a little bit of conversation and debate on what God or idol God is pouring his punishment on. And so with the frogs, it was very simple. With the water, it was very simple. But there's some thought on what God is God coming after through the flies. In Egypt during this time, there was a god that went by the name of Uwadich. And this was an actual fly that they had pictures all over the, the town, all over the sea, all over the country of. And once a year, all of these actual flies that were in Egypt would put themselves on livestock and different animals, living beings, and they would lay their eggs once a year. And the people of Egypt would come together. It was almost kind of like the flowers blooming. It only happened for a short season. And they believed that this was a manifestation of a God who protected them. So whenever the flies did this, once a year, they stopped everything. And they just had these huge celebrations. So some biblical historians believed that this was the God the Lord was coming after. Some believe that it was a God that went by the name of Kephri. And Kephri was not a fly, but it was a beetle. It was a, it was a scarab. And so some biblical historian says, well, hey, this is not a house fly. Because in Egypt during this time, like the fly that you're thinking of was not the fly that was talked about in the Bible. It wasn't there, right? This was a mosquito. This was a beetle. This was just a flying insect. And there was a God of the sun that went by the picture and the imagery of a beetle that they worshiped because the sun gave them everything, gave them crops, gave them light. And so when there was a crescent moon or when the sun went down, what these people honestly believed 
is that there was this gigantic, enormous beetle in the heaven, and the beetle would back up and hide the sun. And so they would pray to the scarab, give us light so our crops can grow. And historically, there's written in other books that during plague four, that whatever it was that, that flew, that this insect, that you could not even see the light. There were so many of them. Can you imagine? There were so many insects, historians have read, that you couldn't even see the sun. That's how many God brought on them. So some people believe that it's this God. And then lastly, some believe that it was Beelzebub, which literally is Satan, which is another name for Lord of the Flies. So historically in Egypt, people would pray to the enemy for protection of the other gods because they looked at Satan as a powerful being that could protect them from gods they did not want any interaction with. And we call him the Lord of the Flies, So some people believe that that is who God is after. But no matter, no matter what illustration that God is using, the overarching message is the same, and that is God hates idols and will punish the idols and those who worship them. So continue in the story in verses 22 through 25. It says, and in that day I will set apart the land, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. And in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land, will you highlight 23 for me? It's our whole message today. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall be. Will you highlight that for me? Let's slow the moment down and read it again. The Lord says, I will make a difference between my people and your people. And tomorrow, this sign shall be. So like I said, guys, I don't know exactly what was flying. If it was a house fly, if it was a mosquito, if it was a beetle, if it was something that we didn't even know existed. But what we do know is that there was a lot of them and it was a lot to handle. The word even tells us later on that the whole entire land and the people were destroyed and corrupted by whatever it is that flew. Can you imagine? Whenever I'm even in my house, If one fly gets in, I will straight up shut everything down and I will spend as long as it takes to kill that joker, right? One fly, I will literally be on a hunt for one. Can you imagine, don't divorce yourself, can you imagine not being able to see the sun? Man, that is a picture of hell, isn't it? Can you imagine of not being able to see the sky for all that was flying and coming your way? Can you imagine such a thing? Terry, I was thinking about Haiti. And when we went to Haiti, a few of us, six or seven, they were known for mosquitoes. And man, I don't like flies, but I really dislike mosquitoes. And Haiti is known for malaria which is a disease caused by mosquitoes. It it kills and plagues that land more than anything, more than poverty, more than sickness. 
And so for the team that went, we had to go get shots and vaccines and all this stuff because we didn't want to get sick. And there was so many flies. Wasn't there, Philip? It's another story what Philip tried to do one night. He took on the, fly, the flies. It didn't go well for him. And so this is what we did. You had to go. You had to have the shot. You had to have all this stuff to rub on you. And then we slept in these nets because you didn't want the, the mosquitoes to get you at night. They were really bad at night. So in the guys' room, it was me and Liam and, and Philip. And so we would take a shower in these small little stalls made out of wood with some bottled waters that you're just dumping on you. And whenever you turn that light on at night, guys, in this little stall, it looked like a porta potty, there was probably 150 mosquitoes. Oh, it was awful. It was awful. Not a funny, awful story, like awful, awful. And I remember being in there with my son because Liam was like eight at the time and we were getting this water and you're just doing this number because there's so many, you're like, I got to move, like stop, drop, and roll because I don't want any of these mosquitoes to get me. And so we would go, we would shower up because we had a long day and then we would run to our bed, no lie. And when I say run, literally, we would run, we would jog to our bed and then we hop in there real quick and we get the nets and we tuck them in to shield us from 150 mosquitoes in our room. And then my son ate at the time. He'd be looking at a book, winding down. And I'd sit there for an hour and... For an hour. Because in that split second, a few would sneak in. Can you imagine not being able to move or walk and mosquitoes or flies or beetles or whatever it is, completely eating you alive? It's a picture of hell. I want you to think about the mindset of the Egyptians during this time. They are broken by what happened to the Nile and their economy. They've been served their false god and frogs, and they saw how silly that was. They are tired, they are scared, they are confused, they are weary, and now they are being eaten alive by whatever it is that flies above them. And this is a picture of hell. And you say to me, well, Hunter, if you're going to turn this into a phenomenally encouraging sermon, you better take a swift turn quickly. Even though we see hell in this, even though we see damnation in this and torture, I see grace. I see glory. I see salvation. I see heaven. Go back. I told you to highlight. Look at verses 22. Do you see protection in punishment? Look at verses 22 through 23 again, please. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of that land. Man, that is an Easter sermon. That is salvation. That is Christ. I will make a difference between my people and your people. And tomorrow, this shall be the sign. 
Goshen was this small little area in Egypt that actually, that is where David or Joseph told his father to come up out of the land. Remember when he sent his brothers home? And he says, go tell dad to come up and he can stay in Goshen. That was in Genesis. That is why those people are there. And in that time, or, or in Exodus, when all of those people, all the swarms, I want you to imagine an invisible wall. I want you to imagine your front yard, and you can't look right, you can't look left, you can't look up, you can't look. Everywhere is swarming with flying insects, and there's this invisible wall that you are not touched. That is what God says he's doing for his people. He says, you will know that I am God. Hang with me. You will know that I am God by the punishment that I am pouring on these people. But you will know more that I am God by my protection on those that I call mine. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Now, Pharaoh, Egypt, they got exactly what they deserved. They were a bunch of disobedient, idol-worshiping, unfaithful, non-compliant people. There's no confusion there. The confusion is, why didn't the Israelites get what they deserve? Like, this wasn't like a pastor's conference that got lost in the mail. These weren't just a bunch of phenomenal type God-loving people willing to do anything. Like, don't forget chapter 5 when they found Moses and Aaron in the alley and they said, hey, brother, this whole God thing is making things rough on us. You need to take that somewhere else. You remember that? Moses and Aaron comes to bring these people out of slavery. Chapter 5, what do they tell them? Pharaoh has made things harder on me Take this away so that Israelites could be looked at in the same light as the Egyptians. We see unfaith. We see ungratefulness. We see disobedient. We see sinner. So why didn't they get the flies? Can you answer? And at its deepest level of theology, we receive the simplest of answers, and that is because they belong to God. They were his. Not because they were wonderful, not because they were great, not because of their last name, not because of anything to do with them, but because they belonged to the Lord. I told you to have a tassel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's the only time I have you flip. Moses, who also writes this book, speaks to these people after Exodus or their future generations and listen to verses 6 through 8. This is after Exodus. And it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord, please hang on it, start highlighting. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. 
You are the least of all the people. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath in which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Nothing, nothing separates the Egyptians and the Israelites besides the fact of who holds them. The only thing that separates the people who get swarmed by flies and the people who see the invisible wall is that God loves them. The Egyptians were not saved or rescued, or the Israelites were not saved or rescued because of their merit or who they were, it's because they belong to the Lord. For you and I today, how is this good news? How is there a phenomenal Easter-worthy sermon in the midst of a plague? For you and I today, born-again believers, hell will never touch you. Hell will never touch you. There is an invisible wall between you and I and the swarms of flies that are eating the lost alive. Exodus 8 is one of the most encouraging, salvation, gospel-centered messages that we could ever ask for. And if you said this to anybody, most people would go, what Exodus 8 are you reading? Are you talking about the flies? Like, are you talking about that picture of hell on earth? No, 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 no. That's not the Exodus, the reading of the born again Hunter Jones sees. I read undeserving grace. I read a love before the creation of the world. I read mercy that's undeserving. I read a father's love. I read the blessings of being saved. Have you ever asked the question or heard the question, how could a loving God sent people to hell? You ever heard that question? Someone come to you? I've heard people say, I don't believe because of this. How in the world, this God that you love, this God that you serve, this God that you sing to, how could a loving God, I'm baffled by this, send people to hell? That's not a confusing question. There's no confusion here. The baffling thing is, how could a fair God send unloving people to heaven? How could God stay with us after the garden? How could Jesus die for our sins and God still stay with us? And in the end game of all of this, there's a reward. Like, how could that be? I want you to picture for a minute, there is no heaven. Hang with me. That's off the board. There's no, we've already blown that after the garden. All we're trying to do is avoid hell. Wouldn't that be awesome? For those who place their faith and their trust 
and their submission to Christ, we won't, as a blessing, experience hell, but we don't get heaven, that's off the table. Wouldn't that be praiseworthy? But wait a minute, there's more? You're in glory building heavenly mansions for us? The same people who nailed your son to the cross? The same people who made this land wicked? The same people who wanted to stay in slavery? The same people who are unfaithful? The same people who are still wicked? The same people who are ungrateful for the invisible wall? Like, we get a reward in this? That is not a hard question to answer. I am baffled that God even wants us with him. That is the confusing question. And at its deepest level of theology, we get the simplest explanation. Why does God prepare a place, send his son, and warn us with him? Because we are his. Because we belong to him. Because he chose us before the foundation of the world, because we are his children, is a picture of a phenomenal father and the love for his children. For my young ones are people who have not been taught salvation correctly. Listen to me. This idea of salvation, this idea of this word, save literally means to be rescued out of love and grace. Why? Because we are his. So I want you to picture this elementary thought of being drowned. You are in the middle of the ocean. You're in the middle of the pool. You're cramped up. You're passed out. You can't swim. Either way, you got problems on your hand. You know you're in trouble. You're in the middle of the deep end. You got no hope. You're dog paddling and you're done. And all of a sudden, someone jumps into the water, grabs you with his mighty hands, brings you to shore to safety. Man, after you catch your breath, how crazy would it be to high-five yourself? Whose story goes like, hey, man, you should have seen how strong I held the lifeguard's neck? No, 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 no. All glory goes to him. I was drowning, I was dead, I was hopeless. I had a one-way ticket to death, but I was rescued. I was saved. And all of my life now points to my gratefulness, my thankfulness of the grace and mercy that was poured onto me. I want you to see, though, that even though We are God, we are gods, we belong to him. We can still act like Pharaoh. Look at verses 24 through 28. Even though we belong to the Lord, we can forget and still act like the Egyptians. Look at 24 through 28. And the Lord did so. The Lord sent the flies And the swarm of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servant's house, 
and into all the land of Egypt, and the land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. I want you to understand the moment. Will you highlight 25? So they weren't able to run into their chambers and hide in their closets. The flies went from the ceiling into the room, right? Inside or outside, they were surrounded. And the Pharaoh said, Moses, Aaron, it's enough. I give up. Go, go sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, it is not right to do so or we'd be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord or God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days, journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to our Lord or God as he will command us. Highlight 28, please. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to your Lord, your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far and seed for me, please. Intercede for me. So even though we belong to the Lord, we can relate to the punishment and the foolishness of the Egyptians. Plague two, the frogs. Pharaoh finally comes to a little sense He hears some things and he goes to Moses and Aaron and he says, that's enough. I give up. Tell the Lord, take your frogs away. And the Lord does. And then what does Pharaoh do? He goes right back to his foolish ways. Let's fast forward. Plague four. Being swarmed by flying insects in and outside your home. What does Pharaoh do? He called for Moses and Aaron and said, I give up. Go, sacrifice to your Lord, your God, into the land. As long as you what? Don't go too far. You can go, but just do not leave Egypt. So being a political man, Pharaoh becomes political. He starts to do what politicians do, and they start to negotiate. So Pharaoh, being a leader, he says, God, let's find a space to compromise. I want slavery. You want freedom. Let's find a compromise in the middle, right? Let's negotiate. Have you ever tried to negotiate with God? Have you ever looked at his word and tried to bend it? What does marriage really mean? What does sex really mean? What does giving really mean? And so you sit there and you say, I know God, you want to be the God of my money. And there's a responsibility in tithing. But God, I live in a materialistic world and my truck payment's pretty high. I got a lot going on. I got places to go, things to buy. You want me to give. I want to hold on to. Why don't we compromise and I serve in nursery and call it even? You ever done this? I give in different ways. God calls us to go. The Holy Spirit has placed on some of your heart the call to adoption, the call to service, the call to missions, the call to teach, the call to go. But you say, Lord, 
I got a lot going on. I got a lot of responsibility. I don't want to go. You say go. I say stay. What about I give to those who go? We are called to gather, come together, and sing, and encourage, and learn, and praise the Lord together. God, I got a busy schedule. I got a lot going on. I got places to be. What if I catch it on the podcast? You ever tried to negotiate with the Lord? It's very important for you and I, every single person in this room, to know that the God who holds us does not negotiate. The God who holds us does not compromise. In most situations in life, nine out of 10, compromise is good. Compromise is wise. Negotiations is fair. There's many times that I sit with my wife and I go, babe, you think this, I think this, let's give or take. I'll give a little, you take a little, let's find a space in the middle. That's healthy marriage. So why can't we do this with the Lord? Why can't we read this and go, yeah, I get it, but you know, I'm in a little bit of different situation. God, what about I meet you somewhere in the middle? Why is that not good? Do you know why? Because perfection does not bend. I am not perfect in my marriage. Politics is not perfect in this country. And so we give and we take. Perfection does not compromise. Perfection does not alter. Perfection does not bend. When God says, Chris Bird, go to the wilderness and sacrifice Anything less is disobedient. When God tells us to do something, anything that falls short or even your attempt to bend it is sinful. And this is what's crazy. This is what blows my mind. It's not just the Egyptians that are trying to negotiate. It's the ones that God has chosen. There are slaves in shackles that tell Moses and Aaron, I want to stay in slavery. I want to stay in slavery because the idea of leaving Egypt scares me to death. I would rather be in bondage. Like I will come here on Sunday as long as I can still sin faithfully on Monday. They found comfort in chains. They found faith more scary. It's good for you and I to know that the God who holds you does not negotiate, does not compromise. And when he calls us out of Egypt, guys, he calls us all the way out of Egypt. He says, I don't want you to stay another night there. I am calling you into a robust faith that is different than anything else you've experienced. There's no negotiations. There is no compromise. There is no bending. I am calling you all the way out. Look at 29 through 32. We start to close in. Says, then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord, I will pray to the Lord 
that the swarms of the flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants and all of his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So as Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses, he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from the servants, from his people, not one remained. But we see, much like the frogs, the Pharaoh hardened his heart once again at this time. Also, neither would he let his people go. So as we start to close in, guys, this is one thing that I've learned. Egyptian or Israelite, American, the people that often try to bend and negotiate with the Lord about his perfect truth are often those who have forgotten who saved them. And so what we do, we find this, ourselves in this space that we're in shackles and we're in slavery even as saved people of sin. And all we hear is you need to be at church and you need to give and you need to sacrifice and you need to teach and you need to go, you need to be faithful. And it just seems like words of burden. And we go, man, I can't do all of this. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to live a robust faith. I don't want to give God my all. So God, what about I meet you in the middle? Because all I see is rules. And all I see is responsibilities. And what I have experienced in my life and what I see in yours often is that when we get to that space, we have forgotten the depths of the water in which we were saved from. We have forgotten the gospel. We have, we have left what it means to be drowning in what we were saved from. So we need to constantly be reminded of salvation. We need to constantly be reminded of how God is sending us into something better, not out as a punishment, not out of a burden, not out of a responsibility, because this actually is good for us. As we pray, when he was calling the Egyptians out, I want you to think, this was nothing but good for them. But in the midst of their desire to hold on to comfort, they saw it as bad. Could that be happening in your life? That God is calling you to be a godly and faithful husband, to be different, to love your wife different, to be a godly mother and raise your children different, to give up your money, to give up your time, to praise him with your efforts and gifts, to give him everything, to leave Egypt. And you look at that and go, man, that doesn't sound good. And God says, because you have forgotten salvation, you have forgotten what you've been rescued from, you've forgotten my goodness, you've forgotten that plague four is a wonderful encouragement. Stay focused. Stay focused on what God has done for you, who he is, and who you are in the light of all of that. Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you for today. Lord, I have been blessed this week. I have been blessed by the encouragement of a plague. Only, only those who are saved can see protection and punishment. 
It's not possible. It's not possible for the lost to see plague four as good news. Just think about this. Plague four is a picture of hell to those who don't know you. But for those who do know you, we see heaven. You have redefined. You have changed hearts. You've made our vision different. So Lord, I pray as David did this morning, if someone does not know you, if what they see in plague four, Exodus eight is hell, if they see that they are not surrounded by the visible walls, but they are surrounded by the flies, Lord, I pray that you save them. I pray that your gospel was loud and blunt and direct and clear. Lord, I pray that they hear this word and they submit to your authority. For us that are saved, but we have forgotten. We have forgotten who we belong to and we've forgotten how good that is. And we have lost some of our thanksgiving and gratefulness. We have found ourselves being comfortable in slavery. Lord, I pray that we repent and we seek forgiveness. Let us praise God for surrounding us with his hands of protection. Let us point our salvation to your glory. In your precious name, the church says in harmony, amen.